0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So, I'd like you to take your Bibles, and if you would open them to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter... 20, we're looking again at this very important passage in which Jesus was teaching his disciples on greatness in the kingdom of God. And if you've been with us for a while, you remember that that is just an ever-present thought on the disciples' minds. Uh, they, They had received Jesus' teachings about a new kingdom, and to their credit, they believed it as difficult as it might be, as impossible as it might seem. They still did believe it. But there was a lot of confusion in their minds, and they didn't understand the radical difference in Christ's kingdom and the kingdoms of the world. Uh, Here are these apostles, and and who wouldn't want to be a leader in a kingdom? Uh, Kingdoms mean ruling, and kingdoms mean authority. Uh, For people that are on the poorer rungs of society, like the disciples were, I mean, why wouldn't they just imagine sitting on thrones and ruling in the kingdom And uh, having people to order around and tell them what to do, instead of being the ones who are always told what to do and being servants of other people, they thought, we are going to rule. Jesus has promised us thrones, and they never gave a second thought about being a servant of other people. Well, that's how they imagined that it would be. And at this point, they are privy to the secrets of this new kingdom, and they are the best friends of the king. They're the first. They are... Privileged, and so they must receive the highest positions of authority. So Jesus had to go back through this again, and he had on several occasions to teach them that his kingdom is not about pride, it's not about personal ambition, but it's about the condition of a person's heart. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 20, and stand with me once again as we read God's word, Matthew 20, beginning in verse number 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Now, I commented last week on that part of the passage that when they came to Jesus, they worshiped him. They did believe what he said, as although I said he, they were confused about it. They did believe there was a coming kingdom. And so they desired a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, thank you for your word. Open this up to us today. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Now, this is such an important question that it takes up most, if not all, of three chapters, chapters 18, 19, and 20. Uh, It's so important that we have all this material that's devoted to this, and yet there was confusion that reigned in the minds of the apostles. They just couldn't get it out of their heads that, The kingdom of God was much more about the condition of their heart than it was about the conceit that they had in their heads. Now, the disciples were like many people that sit in church pews. The pastor can go over the same territory again and again and again, and people have this selective hearing where they hear just what they want to hear. And I suppose that's the reason that I can preach about sin. I'm, I'm talking about sins that people actually do. Now, sometimes as preachers, we stand up and we talk about sin in a generic sense or we talk about things that people don't do. But whenever I preach about sins that people do, inevitably, there are invariably, I should say, there will be someone here that maybe in my mind I, I, I don't really target anybody. But I may have in my mind, you know, I really need to get this out because there's someone in the congregation who needs to hear this particular sermon about their sin. And that very type of person will go out the door and shake my hand as they go out and they say, Pastor, that was the greatest sermon I ever heard. You go after those sinners. You go get them. And they have no realization that they're the ones that, that need to hear this particular, particular message. Well, with this it was what the disciples were like that, what, were like that. I mean, they, they heard what Jesus had to say, but they were guilty of a selective type of hearing. All they heard was "Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom." And they never caught on to what Jesus had to say about suffering, about being servants. And the best evidence of their hard-headedness is what happens at the very beginning of this passage. Now, it starts with, and this is the area that we covered last week, it starts with the foolish request of the disciples. Now, the disciples were truly an ambitious bunch, so much that they weren't above stepping on each other to get what they wanted. They weren't adverse to grabbing hold to any advantage that they might have, including, as these two sons here, James and John, including asking their mother to go to Jesus and intercede for them and have this make this request of him. Now I mentioned last week that this is likely Salome. Uh, She is the mother of James and John, and she was Jesus' aunt, the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother, and so that made Jesus, James and John first cousins. Well that seems to be a point in their favor, or at least they thought that it was These two boys are relatives of Jesus. And so they thought that they would use that family relationship to curry favor with him to gain the best positions in the kingdom. Now, no doubt, Jesus knew the scheme before it ever left their mouths. The plan was to beat the other disciples to the punch and to get their positions before the others had a chance to ask him, and that family relationship would surely, that, that would give them a leg up and would dispose Jesus to give them the highest authority right next to him in his kingdom. Well, that was a beautiful plan. They must have been thinking about it for a long time. And they didn't hear all the stuff about Jesus' suffering and death. They closed their ears to that. They, they, they didn't hear what he had to say and they surely didn't hear this part that Jesus talked about suffering and death and hardship and persecutions for anyone who decided to cast his lot with Jesus and to follow him. Well, the scheme probably would have worked if Jesus was an ordinary man and if his kingdom was a typical kingdom. So Salome came with James and John in tow. They were right behind her prodding her to ask if they could sit one on the right hand and one on the left hand of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. Now, oddly enough, despite that terrible misunderstanding, making that request was a display of faith. As I said a moment ago, they trusted that Jesus was able to do this. Uh, they, they trusted that there would be thrones that they would sit on. They did believe that a kingdom would come. But when they thought about the kingdom, they were only thinking about the physical side. And so they supposed that the kingdom would operate like all other kingdoms before it. And when they had climbed to the top, when they had their positions of authority, then they could look down on those below and just keep pushing them down. But they missed the critical part. They didn't know what it actually took to get those seats that were right next to Jesus. And so Jesus said, you don't know what you ask. To sit in those seats requires that you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And he used those two words. You remember that from last week? The cup and the baptism. And that is a metaphor for pain and persecution and rejection and bitterness that would come because of their faith in him. That their king personally himself, would suffer an agonizing death, a cruel death, and he would bear the reproach of sin and the indignation of God's wrath against it. And all of that would play out on a Roman cross, and it would be the very worst suffering that anyone could imagine. And it wasn't just the physical pain that Jesus went through. Remember, there was also that mental suffering that he went through for his entire life, knowing that he was designed his life was designed to come to that very point to the death of the cross and then there was that spiritual suffering of being rejected by his heavenly father that never happened before all that was upon jesus and it would burst into the intense suffering of an infinite hell as he hung on the cross but jesus was willing to put himself into that position because as he said his mission was to seek and to save the lost That's the way it has to be done. It has to pass through the pain, the suffering, the humiliation of first being a beaten-down servant before an exalted king. And so Jesus said, you don't know what you ask. Those seats mean that you must taste what I will suffer. To be exalted, you must first be willing to be brought low and to bear the reproach of my cross for me and for the good of others and they didn't know what that meant. Jesus knew that he would have to change their hearts to get rid of this selfish ambition. He would give them a makeover so that instead of desiring those seats as an object of their pride, they would obtain them by the reward of their selfless humility for their willingness to suffer rejection for his cause, and likewise because of their love that they would gain for the souls of men. Now that's truly a question I think that we have to ask ourselves. Do we really understand what Christ's kingdom is about? Are we prepared for Christ's kingdom? And we aren't if we're still prideful. We aren't if we're still pushing self all of the time. If we have no sense of this calling that God has given, that we are to serve others, then we're in the same position as these apostles. We ignorantly think that we are great men and women of God when the Bible says that people who think like that, the works that they do are only what? Wood, hay, and stubble, and all of those will be burned up when God judges his people. But that kind of learning, that was still a ways off for these apostles. Uh, They would not be willing to accept this reproach until he died and arisen from the dead. And that's kind of an odd turn of events because with a living king with Jesus right there with them, they would make the kind of sacrifice that he's asking. In a physical kingdom with a living king, they wouldn't risk all for him. Not until he died. Not until he was resurrected and they saw the power of the resurrection. Would they be willing to live as he lived and to serve as he served and to die as he died? Not until they'd seen the power of the resurrection. And I would submit to you, who are followers of Jesus Christ today, that none of you would be willing to die for this man, even if he was the best man that ever lived. You would not be willing to die for him until you see the crucified and risen Lord who gave himself as an offering for your sins. You would never entertain giving your life for him. It's a difficult commitment. Something very difficult that he asked. And perhaps the reason that many don't give the commitment is because they say that they're Christians, but they have never really experienced the power of the resurrection. And you know, I often wonder that when I talk to Christians and I see a lack of commitment from church members. When it's hard to get God's people to give all day, God's whole day to him, sometimes I wonder if the profession of faith is real. Jesus commented on the same when he said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And just think about that. How much sacrifice is it to give God his whole day? I mean, what can you possibly do that's more important than worshiping God? Don't expect that you'll sit on thrones and don't expect that you'll do great things for God if you can't do the very least thing that he asks of you. Well, Jesus said to them, you don't understand what you're asking. Your request invites the most severe of troubles. Those that sit on these thrones must enter my kingdom through much tribulation. Now, you notice the reaction of the other disciples when they heard what James and John had done. Verse 24 says, And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. They were moved with indignation against them. And that's the King James way of saying they were hopping mad about what they'd just done. They didn't like this. They... They were angry. Why were they angry? Were they angry because James and John had so callously looked over uh, what Jesus had just said without any compassion at all when Jesus talked about going to the cross and dying there and then giving his life for people? Were they angry at that lack of compassion and recognition of what Jesus was about to do? No, they weren't angry about that. They weren't angry that James and John were not more sensitive and sorrowful that Jesus should die. They weren't angry at that. They were thinking of themselves. They were just like James and John were. They were angry because James and John got there first and they had a better scheme to get what they wanted than they did. And they were angry because nepotism is such a good tactic. And James and John have the ability to use it. It's a definite advantage. And I think that they were most angry that they thought it might just work. That James, or rather that Jesus would think about it for a while and he would say, well, you know, maybe they're right. They're they're relatives, they're family. Let me just give them the positions that they asked for. Then the rest of the disciples end up playing second fiddle to the sons of thunder, James and John. So all of them suffered from this selfish ambition. They would have stepped on James and John if they'd been given half a chance. And we just see how radically their attitudes must change before they become the apostles that we now know. John, who is prideful and arrogant here, is not the same John that wrote 1 John and 2 John and 3 John and then recorded the life of Jesus and the gospel of John. Peter, one who was always brash and sticking himself out front and putting him in places where he probably shouldn't have been, is not the same Peter that wrote the epistles of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. All of these men were changed, and they needed to be changed before they could become the leaders that Christ wanted. Jesus wanted men like him, men that would humble themselves and serve others and put their own ambitions aside. So Jesus had to teach them further. What is greatness in his kingdom? How can it be achieved? Well, here's how. Number two in your outline today, it's achieved by the full demotion of self. Verse 25, but, when Jesus, but Jesus called them unto him and said, ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Now the kingdom of God operates under completely different principles in the kingdoms of the world. Greatness is not about dominating people. Greatness in his kingdom is about subordination, not dominion. It's about serving, not being served. Have you ever heard of a king that ruled like that? That just doesn't happen in the kingdoms of the world. And so Jesus illustrated by contrasting his kingdom to the kingdoms of the world. He said, the princes of the Gentiles operate this way. And Gentiles there means the world. It's the world's way to keep fighting their way to the top, and then when they get to the top, to push people down below them and make them feel the weight of their authority. Now that's the way it works, not only in the kingdoms of the world, but that's the way it usually works in everyday life. Now I remember when I first got out of school that I worked for a guy who had made it to mid-level management and he wanted to exercise the little bit of authority that he had and as he did, he wanted to make everybody as miserable as he could make them. A little power made him feel really big and he made everybody feel the weight of that authority. You know, I even feel that way sometimes about the Neighborhood Association. Some of the neighbors got into positions of authority. They got elected to the Neighborhood Board, and now they're pinhead little dictators that love pushing their weight around. And I'm sorry, I'm projecting now, but that's, that's the way I feel sometimes. But you know how this works. I mean, this works. This is the world system. It's to fight your way to the top, to get up there and to sit on that perch and then poop on everybody below you. Now, that's really the sum of verse number 25, even though Jesus is not as crass as I am to say it that way. But that's what he means here. People lord it down on others, and Jesus says he will not have that in his kingdom. William Hendrickson described the power structure of Christ's kingdom as being an inverted pyramid. The power positions are on the bottom looking up, and the leaders are serving, not being served. So Jesus said, the Gentiles do this. They lord it down. They flaunt their authority. They oppress and they make you feel the weight. And then he says, it shall not be so among you. Now he uses two words in verses 26 and 27 that really show how upside down his kingdom is. They wanted to get to the top and he was going to show them how to get there. The pathway to greatness is actually a descending path. Do they really want to go the way that you have to go? Now, first he said that greatness means being a servant. Now, I want you to pay attention to me because you might think that I'm getting ahead of myself. In verse number 26, Jesus said, But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Now, do you see the word minister? The word actually means servant. Now, today we use the word minister and we take it out of its biblical context. We think of a certain position. I'm different from you because I am the minister of this church. And we have certain department heads in the church that we may call ministers, and we separate them out and we put them over people and we give them a higher position. But originally the word wasn't used like that. It just meant servant. It was a common, ordinary word that had no religious significance. A minister was like the guy that was at the door, that when you walked in, he would bend down and he would wash your feet. Wash the dirt off your dirty feet from walking in the sandals and the byways. That was a minister. What does a minister do? He serves. The word means a servant. And speaking of washing feet, didn't Jesus give a beautiful example of that when he girded him with a towel around the waist and he bent down and he washed the disciples' feet? This is exactly the way that Jesus uses the word servant in this passage. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, your servant. Now another interesting thing about this word is that in the Greek, it's the word diaconus. And you recognize that because that's the word from which we get deacon. This is the most common word that you find in the New Testament to describe service and ministry. Now, in many churches, that original word deacon is taken completely out of its context because in some churches, the deacons are the power brokers. They're feared by the people, feared by pastors alike. And one thing you don't want to do, you do not want to get crossways of the deacons. But the word here just means a servant. I mean, the office is greatly misused if we look at it any other way than just a servant. That's it. That's all the word means, minister. That is a servant. And so in those days, if you needed somebody to do something for you, you hired a deacon. That's the word, diaconus. You hired a deacon to do it. And then another interesting thing about it, the last part of the word is konos. And in the Greek, that means somebody who stirs up dust. So a deacon is someone who stirs up dust in the service of others. Does that sound like a power broker? No, the deacon is a minister. He's a servant. And what he does, he actually sits at the bottom of the inverted pyramid doing things for others. And do you know what happens when he stays there faithfully? 1 Timothy 3.13 says he purchases to himself a good degree. So Jesus said, if you want to be great... You must put yourself out there in the service of others and for the glory of God. It can't be about you all of the time. In fact, it can't be about you any of the time. You must completely demote self and be used up in the service of others. So it takes a lot, doesn't it? It takes a lot to get those seats that are right next to Jesus. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about that. Who are you closest to? Are you closest to the way that the disciples thought about things? Or are you closest to the way that Jesus thought? Now, the thing about these disciples, we we, we may criticize them and, and say, you know, they're always messed up on things. But eventually, they did get there. They got to the place that Jesus wanted them to be, whereas today, most Christians never get there. Most Christians never come to the place that they are the minister, the servant that Jesus talks about here. Now, the second word is found in verse 27. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Now, this time the King James uses the word servant, but what Jesus is actually saying is that greatness means being a slave. Now, he switches words this time. This time the word is doulos. That means a bond slave. And this is a word that's even lower on the rung than the diaconess. The one who would be great in the kingdom must be a slave. And notice how he emphasizes this. He says, whosoever will be chief. Chief is the word protos. It means first. Whosoever will be first, who will be the greatest, the one that will be first, must become a slave. And that doesn't sound anything at all like the kingdoms of the world. Slaves don't sit on thrones. But in God's kingdom they do. And we'll never reign with Christ until we first become slaves in his kingdom. So do you see what Jesus did here? Contrary to the self-esteem movement, or what you might call the me, me, me movement, Jesus kept putting self down, totally demoting self to the lowest position. Do you hear people talking like that today? Who demotes self? Most people won't do this. But Jesus kept emphasizing this, demoting self and taking the lowest position. And folks, this was graphic to them, more so to us, because they knew this firsthand. They knew about slaves and slavery because it was going on at that time in the, in the economy of the Roman Empire. We don't recognize it this way because we don't have slaves today. Slaves have no rights. Slaves have no citizenship. A slave is not free. Everything that a slave does is for another. And all of those things are things that we pride ourselves in. We are citizens. We have our rights. We demand our rights. I'm free. And what I do is for my good. And that is the good old American way. Everything that I do is for me. It promotes me. Now, even in church, we find it's that way. People want their rights. I mean, what right do you have to have what I don't have? Why can you have something that I don't have? All of us want to be treated equally or better. And if we're not, we squawk about it. But God's people aren't to think that way. We are to think of others better than us. Now, you can imagine that this word loss was absolutely huge to them. This is not voluntary servitude. This is slavery just like you think of slavery. A slave is one who belongs to another. And that's what you have to be to be great in God's kingdom. Now, of course, that really bothers a lot of people. It bothers a lot of Christians. It bothers a lot of preachers because they don't like to tell people that if you're going to follow Christ, then this is what he demands of you, that you must be his slave. But you can't get around the words that Jesus used, and you can't get around what they meant In that ancient world in which these people lived, you can't get around this imagery that we must be slaves to Christ. But I don't want you to miss this. You are slaves. Christians are slaves, but they are free. Well, how can a slave be free? Well, thirdly, the freedom of redemption. Now, last week I told you this passage is going to get very theological. It's intensely practical, now perhaps even more intensely theological. Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, listen, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Do you remember any time in the stories that we read about Jesus as we've gone through the book of Matthew? Do you remember any time where Jesus said, give me this? And give me that. Did he say to anyone, Now I'll heal your son, or I'll heal your daughter, or I'll heal you if you do this for me. Bow down. Kiss my ring. And then maybe I'll hold out my scepter to you, and I'll show you favor. Well, Jesus never sat on a pedestal and had his servants come and fan him and feed him grapes and keep him comfortable in the heat. He was a servant. He was always a servant of others. That's the practical part of the passage. He came to serve, not to be served. And that's our example. Well, let's look at the theological part as we close the message today. There are three important truths that I want you to get from this. Three important truths that we find here. The first is that Jesus is a supernatural Savior. He said, even as the Son of Man came. You ever thought about that expression? Jesus came. He always said it that way, I came, or he says I was sent. There's only one time in all four of the gospel accounts that Jesus said I was born. He said to Pilate, for this end I was born, and then he immediately followed it up with, and for this cause came I into the world. Jesus came. That indicates pre-existence. I don't say that I came, I say I was born. My birth is the beginning with me, but not so with Jesus because he's supernatural. His birth was not his beginning. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He came. And that's the way he always states it because he wants to show that he is eternal. Secondly, Jesus was a suffering substitute. He came to give his life for. Now circle the word for there. He give, To give his life a ransom for many. Now, there we find the idea of an exchange, that he trades his lives for the lives of others. Now, this is, in itself, just a remarkable concept. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Well, how is that possible? How is that possible? Is his life worth more than the lives of others? Now, you see, in those days, they would make their prisoner exchanges, one prisoner for another. They exchanged POWs. Occasionally, an officer might be exchanged for two or three other men that were of lower rank. But Jesus says here that he came to give his life a ransom for many. And if anybody else had said that, that would be a very arrogant statement because it indicates that his life is more valuable than the lives of any others and many others. Now, if I said to you, I will give my life for you because my life is more valuable than some of all of your lives... I looked over this room and I said, my life is more valuable than all of your lives put together. You would say, what conceit, what arrogance for him to say something like that. But Jesus said this with no shame. And that's because his life was worth all that have ever lived, all that are living, or all that ever will live. Infinitely more than the value of all of them. And he gave his life to pay the redemption price for all of them, for for all the world, for people, past, present, and future. And so it's no problem for him to say he gave his life for many. His life was a ransom. And that's a very important statement that you ought to note because this is the very first time that Jesus stated his death in terms of redemption. A ransom price is paid for the release of others. Now let's take that back to slavery. The word that's used here for ransom is the word Lutron. It's used only twice in the New Testament. The word Lutron. And the release of a slave is the word Lutronus. Jesus paid the price to release us from the bondage of sin and to purchase us to himself. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, "...for you're bought with the price." Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are bought with the price. Now the word bought there is the word agorazo. And what it means is to be bought out of the market. And here it's talking about the slave market of sin. We've been bought out of the slave market of sin. So you've been freed from sin. You're no longer the slaves of sin, but you now become the ownership. You become the property of the Redeemer. As Peter said in 1 Peter 1.19, the price of your redemption was the precious blood of Christ. And so do you see that? Now it says that you belong to God. You are now his slave. And Paul used that word doulos many, many times. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. There the word servant is doulos. It means a slave, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Romans 6.20 says, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things, whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit and the holiness and the end everlasting life. We were the slaves of sin, but now we are the slaves of God. Slaves of sin. Of righteousness, very simply, the Word of God says, "You are not your own, and we just read it, you're not your own. you've been bought with the price, therefore, glorify God because you 've been bought with that price. Now, ransom is to free a prisoner, redemption is to buy a slave. Now thirdly, and this is very, very important, because this is the place where many people get stuck on Jesus' statement in verse twenty eight Thirdly, Jesus is selective in salvation. He is selective in salvation. He gave his life a ransom for many. Now you'll notice this, that whenever the Bible speaks of the price that was paid by Christ, it is a price of a real deliverance. The ransom has been paid and the ransom did exactly what it was supposed to do. It paid the price and it set the prisoner free. There is no thought that is more degrading to the blood of Christ and to the sacrifice of Christ than to say that he died as a substitute that did not really redeem. That he paid a price, but he didn't really buy anything. He paid the sins for sins of people that go to hell, but there actually are people in hell that he paid the price for and they're paying the price that Jesus already paid. Well, that can't be. No, he he was a substitute and he paid the price. He didn't pay a price for people that are never delivered and never will be delivered. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus could have only paid the ransom price for those people that truly do believe. He's selective in salvation. Otherwise, we have to redefine Substitution. Now, if a ransom price is paid for people that don't believe, then Christ paid a price that does not deliver, and that price was his own blood, which was not the price anyway. So what did Jesus do? He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to deliver all those who would believe, and they really are redeemed. They really are set free. They really are freed from the penalty of sin. They really do become the children of God. And they really do enter into his kingdom. Nowhere in the scriptures do you ever find the thought that Christ's payment for sin would still leave somebody shackled in the prison house of destruction. He gave his life to deliver people. Do you understand that? He gave his life to set people free. And those who believe are set free. There's no possibility of being otherwise. So Jesus did the ultimate. He came to this earth to be a servant, but he went beyond what any of us could do as a servant. And that is, he gave his life a ransom for many. Now let me finish with this statement. Greatness is not asking, what shall we have? But what shall we give? To be great in God's kingdom, you have to flip worldly thinking upside down. You have to reverse your own ambition. Well, that would raise the question, is it wrong to be great? Is it wrong to seek to be great in God's kingdom? Absolutely not. You know, God loves your ambition. He loves every bit of your ambition. He just wants it channeled in the right place. He wants your ambition to be channeled in being an ambitious servant. I want to do as much as I can for others, and for the God that I serve. Isn't that what a slave is? He does everything that he is for his master. Now I would have to ask you today, which place would you rather sit? Which place do you want to sit? How about sitting in a seat of service? Because those are the greatest seats in God's kingdom. That is the highest position that anyone can ever attain, being a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. You haven't achieved greatness until you become his slave. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of the word that we've seen today and how our minds really do need to be changed. We, we hear so much in the Christian world today about our, 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 our self-worth and our esteem and, and what we are and who we are and what we can attain and what we're going to get. And we hear it said over and over and over again, but nobody ever really stops to talk about being a real servant. Nobody talks about being on the bottom of the inverted pyramid where true greatness really resides. Lord, I pray that you'd change our hearts. Help us to see something different. This is the very thing that causes people in a church to love one another like they should, to go through things like the loss of loved ones and have people stand beside them to be sick and have somebody bring food, to have somebody pray for them when they can't do things for themselves, when the financial burdens are too deep, when all the holes are too big to climb out of. Being a servant is being the one there that gives a hand and always says, Lord, let me, let me do it for them that I might glorify you. That's what you expect from us. Help us to be that kind of a church. Help us to be slaves, true bond servants of Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally,